This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 4th, 2024. Careful tax developments are brought to you by Captain Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this we're going to look at the following key things that have happened in the world of taxes. First, we're going to take a look at the uh, case that came down late on Friday where the Corporate Transparency Act, we've talked about quite a bit over the past year, was found to violate the U.S. Constitution by a U.S. District Court in Alabama. We'll discuss the consequences of that ruling, uh, why you probably better not throw out everything you know about the CTA right now, uh, because we're definitely not at the end of the story yet. Uh, but we'll talk about what the impact is, those people who currently would be in a position of not being able for the government not being able to enforce the law against them and the larger number who currently do not have that relief. So we'll talk about that here in just a second. We're also going to talk about the fact that the uh, tax court issued a ruling on the impact of a secure 2.0 Act statute of limitation change on returns filed before the effective date of the Act. This is a provision looking for excess contributions to retirement plans when a Form 5329 was not filed with the Form 1040. Finally this week, about IRS warning issued uh, to taxpayers about problems they've been seeing in 1040s that are being filed, where the taxpayers this year, they've seen an increased number of such returns where a reconciliation of the advanced premium tax credits required, but the taxpayer do not attach a necessary form, which results in electronic filing a uh, reject of the return and a need to resubmit. Paper filing, it results in correspondence as it has in the past. So we'll talk a little bit about that option as well here as we're getting into tax season. So let's begin with the Corporate Transparency Act case. This is the case of the National Small Business of National Small Business United versus Yellen, case number 5 colon 22-CV01448 from the Northern District of Alabama in a 2024 case, the decision was issued on March 1st of 2024. In fact, just before five o'clock central time on March the 1st. That's why we didn't see a lot of coverage of this and may not have seen much probably until Tuesday because a lot of the tax publishers essentially were already shut down for the weekend by the time that this came down the pike. And certainly they have their Monday stuff already written up by that time normally. So we're going to find that probably you're going to see the guidance on this on Tuesday is when we're going to see most of it in your tax software. Now, the National Small Business Association, that's the National Small Business United is the entity's name. The National Small Business Association is the name of the organization uh, that people are members of. They filed suit on the Corporate Transparency Act. And they essentially had three broad claims about why this law should not be enforced. First, they argued that Congress exceeded its powers in enacting the CTA. The Congress, did, the basic Congress was not authorized by the Constitution to pass a bill of this type, of this particular structure. Secondly, they argued that, well, if that's not the problem, then the law, in fact, violates the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 10th Amendments. So we got half of them. Half of the Bill of Rights ends up being violated by this bill for the claims of the uh, National Small Business Association. And then finally, they argued 
that the law was impermissibly vague in its terms. That's something that uh, comes home to roost about equal protection of the law. You know, people have to have some idea about how they're supposed to be able to keep on the right side of a law. And if a law is impermissibly vague, that can result in there being no action available under it because people couldn't reasonably have figured out what they were supposed to do not to be in violation of the law. On late on Friday afternoon, as mentioned, the court released its 52-page opinion. And, you know, it became available. And I discovered it actually after watching, <laughs> went out and saw Dune uh, Saturday night after doing my work at the office. And uh, I got back and I was just checking in online uh, ju just before I decided I was going to hit the sack after watching Dune, you know, got back from the theater, etc. And found this little blurb about the fact that, yep, there was a case and yep, it came out. And so that, that's why when I get up on Sunday, I'm reading the case and working through what happened in this regard and what the impact of it is likely to be. So question is, what, what happened here? Well, the court concentrated heavily on this. In fact, basically, they only decided to decide one of the issues in this case, ruling that the other two are irrelevant once they decided the first one. And in this case, the court found that Congress had failed to show that what they did here fit within its enumerated powers under the Constitution, uh, taking into account the necessary and proper clause at the end. There is a set in Article 1, Chapter 8, if I remember right, of the Constitution that enumerates the powers of Congress. And the very last one says, essentially, which is sometimes referred to as elastic clause, uh, that allows, you know, that they can do anything necessary and proper to carry out the functions listed above. So the necessary and proper clause is what we're looking at here. Was the enactment of the, the enactment of the Corporate Transparency Act and the Beneficial Ownership Information Reporting Provisions, did that, was it a necessary and proper provision to carry out one of, at least one of the enumerated powers listed in the Constitution for the United States Congress? Now, those powers that we we're going to talk about here, and they said, and the government argued, they were exercising and under the necessary and proper clause, these serve to advance those clauses, was the power of Congress to deal with certain foreign affairs. The Commerce Clause, both interstate and international commerce, and the general taxing power of Congress, that they argued that each of these standing alone authorized the Congress to pass the CPA. Now, essentially, the court found that Congress didn't show, or that the, basically Treasury couldn't show, because Treasury is obviously defending the law here, the Treasury couldn't show that what we had with the CTA was a proper extension of these rules. And the big one that actually they spent the most time on, which probably makes sense when you think about it, is the Commerce Clause. Uh, and that includes both interstate and international commerce. The court made it very clear that the formation of LLCs, corporations, limited partnerships, LLPs, and everything else that gets it gets brought in under the CTA's rules, uh, these are all within the jurisdiction of the states and always have been. So it's been a state issue. And 
fundamentally the court's concern was that mere formation of the entity was what caused the requirement to report. And the catch is Congress's commerce powers are limited to interstate and international commerce. Now, case law over the years have greatly broadened that, and pretty much it's very, very difficult to run any sort of operation that's doing anything or holds any asset without running into interstate or international commerce that either is being conducted or is being impacted by uh, the activities of that entity. And if either one of those are shown, then essentially Congress can use the Commerce Clause powers. And in fact, the court says effectively that there are ways that this problem with the enumerated powers clause and the necessary and proper activities to go along with those enumerated powers could have been solved. And one of the key ones they bring up is that effectively it tells us in the opinion that if they had limited applicability of this particular reporting rule to only LLCs, corporations, LPs, etc., that were involved in interstate international commerce or essentially, or you know, just basically, or were impacting that commerce. And as I say, the simplest thing like making a phone call, right, or putting something in the mail will be considered to be impacting or participating in interstate commerce. So it's very, very difficult, you know, to totally avoid interstate commerce issues, considering how the courts have interpreted that. But as I said, if that requirement was there, and it was not the incorporation of the entity, but the entering into interstate or national commerce that triggered the filing, then the law would be fine, at least on this issue. Now, the problem, obviously, you know, in that case is that if, in fact, that was in there, almost every entity that we are currently talking about filing a CTA BOI report on, we'd still end up filing one on because effectively almost every entity that we as CPAs, or if you're an EA attorney that you're dealing with is probably doing something or holding some asset. And that's gonna raise such a huge risk that at some point somebody will do something inadvertently that will trigger you know, interaction across state or international lines, especially in today's world of the internet, that yeah, Basically, you're going to want to file the report regardless. You're not going to wait and, you know, wait and hope to argue that, in fact, you had no international interactions. Arguably, pro the court probably would have accepted that, let's say, you have an LLC, you're here in Arizona, uh, where I'm at, but you form the LLC in Delaware. Well, that's probably, that's going to be interstate commerce, right? The LLC is a Delaware entity but the owners of it are Arizona entities, so therefore that's another interstate activity. And once the entity participated in that activity, then apparently Congress would have all rights to require this data to come in. So there is a quick fix, we just have to see what happens if they wanted to, and if we need the fix, okay? Now, as I said, as the court found that the law essentially was void, because if Congress passes a law they're not allowed to pass, you know, it, it, it's like me sitting here and writing a, writing a tax law. 
know, I, I, I draft this wonderful new provision, add it to say it's, oh, I'm going to add this general revenue code. That's great, but I have no authority to do that. So essentially, as the court kind of pointed out in the opinion, um, with their ruling, this is just as moot as my addition to the Internal Revenue Code is, right? Congress didn't have the power to put this in the law, you know, just as I don't have the power to change the IRC by myself. Lacking that power, they didn't worry about whether or not it violated the First, Fourth, and Fifth Amendments. They didn't concerned about that. They specifically said we didn't rule on that. They also didn't really rule on all the details of the other amendments or the issue regarding the impermissible vagueness of the rule. So we still really don't know what would happen if they had to rule on that, which is interesting. Other big thing that was pointed out by you know, Kelly Phillips Herb in her article in Forbes, it was one of the first ones I saw dealing with this particular case. Uh, right now, it appears that the, the judgment only restricts enforcement against the plaintiffs in the case. And the plaintiffs in the case were this organization, you know, National Small Business United, but it was filed on behalf of their 65,000 members. And then one particular person who would have to file related to his officer, I believe, of that entity, would be obviously a beneficial owner in that scenario. So bottom line, uh, we know that you know, essentially, it would appear the members are okay. That existed at least on the date the case was decided. And potentially, it appears, and there's some cases that have worked this way in the past, it would also cover anyone who becomes a member of the organization, even if they weren't a member on March 1st. Now, the problem, of course, is that that's not really a very, very tenable position for Treasury. So I'm not sure you know, where they have, you know, these now, according to the name, the organization, they have 65,000 members. So where there are 65,000 of the 32 million entities out there, at least on paper, probably a bit more because I'm sure many of the members of this have more than one entity. But those 65,000, so let's say, let's even say there's, you know, 10 times that 655,000 uh, entities that are members of the organization. Of the 32 million, that's, that, that's enough to be a problem, but it's not enough to, you know, yeah, make it simple to figure out who's who. There's no good way they're going to know who they could or couldn't move against. So not very tenable for Treasury, but we'll see what goes on. As I note, Treasury basically can't really leave things like this, right? They could simply accept the verdict and ask Congress to fix the tax law. In essence, instead of just having the 65,000 members uh, and the other plaintiff, you know, along with, uh, you know, that, that they're exempt and everybody else still has to file and do this unless they take their own case to court, because this is coming from a U.S. district court only in one district in Northern District of Alabama. So ultimately, if I'm sitting here in Phoenix and I'm not a member of the organization, and now I'm looking at whether I have a BTA or, you know, sort of a CTA, BOI filing requirement. I have to understand that, yeah, I'm going to have to litigate the case myself, get assigned a judge here in the district court for Arizona. And then from the Arizona judge, hope the Arizona judge agrees with the Alabama judge in this case. 
and grants me the same relief. Because obviously, if the judge doesn't, then I need to file. And I probably don't want to spend all the money it would take to try that case to see whether or not I have to file. So the idea would be that Treasury might decide they're politically, they've decided they can't really do anything about it. They've decided they're not likely to win on appeal. So they could just back off and accept that the law is unconstitutional. And if it is, it's unconstitutional for everybody. So therefore not push forward and enforce the law. We would also, though, expect a ton of pushback from law enforcement if they tried to do that. Right? Law enforcement still wants this thing on the books. So more likely is, I suspect, there will at least be an appeal of the ruling to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, once we're done with the 11th Circuit, then it gets more interesting. If there's a loss there, do they go to the Supreme Court? Well, they can try. Will the Supreme Court hear it? Don't know. This is one they might because of the fact that we're dealing with a constitutional issue and it's never been dealt with before. So I could see the Supreme Court deciding that maybe this is really something they should decide as opposed to just one circuit court. And then we'll see what the others do as a case comes before them. But you'll need to keep your eye on that issue going forward. And the other problem we have, if there's an appeal, and a lot of times courts do exactly what this court did. If there are like, you know, 32 different ways that the plaintiff is alleging that they should be entitled to relief, rather than ruling on all 32, if you find one, and usually the judge will like to go for the strongest one from the judge's perspective, strong being least likely to be overturned on appeal, and basically provide that that's that saying, okay, you're right, this thing's out of the law, and skip the other issues. The problem, of course, is if the appeals court rejects the district court's ruling on saying, nope, these are within the enumerated powers, you know, it is a, you know, it, it is a something necessary, right, proper and necessary to carry out those powers, then it's very likely the case gets sent back to district court to develop the parts of the case they decided to ignore. Now, this thing was supposedly fully briefed uh, and was going for summary judgment only at the time. So potentially there might be a record that could be used uh, by the Court of Appeals or by the Supreme Court to actually decide the other issues. But quite often, especially when there are a lot of them, I suspect the court's going to want to kick it back down. And the problem with that is that's going to run us into a time frame problem. Right. When do we have to do this? So right now, my position is probably we need to file these things. Right. That's it. So even though we have this, the odds are for the moment, I would say continue to move forward as if you have to file them. Now, remember, constitutional law is definitely not something that CPAs or EAs are trained in. In fact, a whole lot of attorneys don't want to touch constitutional law questions. Right. How they work, or at least in much detail. Um, it's a definite specialty. So while I think you have to inform your clients that there has been a holding that the law is unconstitutional, I think also tell them that you, if you're a CPA, EA, you're not an attorney, you've got to tell them that you don't have the background to tell them whether or not they should go ahead and file anyway. You know, obviously, if you file and you don't have to, then aside from giving information up to the feds, nothing else is going to happen. But the flip side of that is if you decide you don't want to do it, 
then they better talk with the attorney because, as I said, sitting here in Arizona right now, not a member of one of the organizations, I would say that, or not a member of the organization, um, I would be facing some pretty hefty penalties if I decided I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to go to court to get the ruling. I'm just not doing it because I'm going to use this case. Um, just understand the penalties if you're wrong, right? $591 per day. So that gets expensive after a while. So that's definitely something to keep in mind as we look at this. But this will keep developing, I expect, throughout the year, if not longer. So keep your eye on what's happening with the Corporate Transparency Act and with this particular case coming out of Alabama. Next up, another case, Couturier versus Commissioner. Now, Couturier versus Commissioner, 162 TC number four, it was issued on February 28th of 2024. And this is a case dealing with the Secure 2.0 Act. And what happened is in the Secure 2.0 Act, Congress started the statute of limitations for excess contributions to an IRA, right? When the 1040 was filed for the year in question, even if no Form 5329 was submitted with that 1040, or even if no 1040 was otherwise required, no 1040 was filed, we'd still get that as a starting down the statute. Under the old law, it was very clear from rulings from the tax court in the past that if you never filed the 5329, you hadn't filed it and attached it to your Form 1040, that by definition, your statute never started to run. So you were open on an indefinite statute until you got a 5329 file. That was the prior law. The new law tells us that the statute will be six years from the date the 1040 is filed or deemed filed. Remember, if you file a 1040 before the initial due date, the 1040 is deemed filed on the initial due date. So for this year, for 2023, 1040s, the statutes will start running on April 15th of 2024. And in this case, it would run to six years. So the IRS would have until April 15th of 2030 to essentially give you a notice of deficiency on not having paid this tax when they say you should have. Now, the weird part about this new six-year statute is its effective date. This act says this provision shall take effect on the date of enactment of this act. Our question is, what does that mean? And let's go to the Couturier case to take a look at that. Okay, in Couturier, the taxpayers had, the taxpayer had overfunded an IRA in 2004 by approximately $26 million. Yeah, they claimed a rollover that wasn't really a rollover. So let, let's accept that. So back in 2004, now, as you know, according to the way the penalties work here for overfunding is you have to basically pay a penalty of 6% for each year you remain overfunded. Now for each year, you can convert a portion of that particular you know, balance in the IRA you know, you convert that over to contributions, right? The extent contributions are allowed. They might be non-deductible, but you could convert them. You couldn't, if you do that, you convert, let's say the max over, you can't then go ahead and make a contribution, but you contribute up to that number. So slowly over time, you, you could absorb that up, but otherwise it's hitting you for 6% every year. It gets expensive. Now, in 2016, the IRS issued two notices of deficiency for the overfunding of the plan. 
Now, this was 12 years after, essentially, the return had been filed uh, for 2004. And, you know, and then basically other periods of time for the later returns that went after. And so the catch is we have these notices of deficiency. Now, even though it was 2016 when the notice of deficiencies went out, and they covered 2004, 2008, and 2009 to 2014, uh, the taxpayer filed in tax court, and then they tried two different tactics to try to get the case dismissed before it went to trial. And this is actually their third try getting it dismissed, right? And in both cases, they lost their argument saying the assessment was time barred, pointing out that nope, it wasn't, everything was fine under the then law. Now, the then law did not have the new provision that we find in the SECURE Act that says those excess contributions, we're going to have to treat those as, you know, filed on April 15th of the following year in the, for the most part, or when actually filed if we're on extension, right? So that, that'd be our secondary option. We do that, which extends it a little bit, right? That those were not there. We, we, we had the, the, you know, the new SECURE Act rules aren't there at that point. Now, because of that, here's what happens. They do two, they lose. We're still at trial at December 29th of 2022. So now the taxpayers in 2023 moved to have the case dismissed on the years 2004 to 2008. As they said, the notice of deficiency for each of those was issued more than six years after the deemed date it was been filed. And the change should only apply to all actions pending and the change should apply, not only, but should apply to all actions pending at the day of enactment, whether they are just sitting out there and the IRS could go after them, or the IRS has actually been exam, the IRS is in the middle of exam, or the IRS has given notice of deficiency, or we're in the middle of trial in tax court on December 29th, 2022, that this should have stopped any of that from applying because they claim Congress's intent was clearly to give retroactive relief to taxpayers. So the six-year statute would exist. That is how this would come down. We get three opinions out of this, which is kind of interesting. We get a majority opinion, which has six justice, judges on its side. A concurring opinion concurs in result that has five on with the, you know, in that case. And then we have a dissenting opinion, which has two judges. As you may guess, the majority opinion is not really the majority except in result. But it is definitely the uh, one that more judges signed off on than anything else. So let's talk a little bit about the issues. So what's the issue with the majority? In the majority, they ruled that the effective date of the statute meant it only applied to returns filed after December 31st of 2020, of December 29th of 2022. And since that's going to be every 2022 and 23 return, but almost, but probably not 21 returns or earlier, right, which hadn't been filed. Uh, in that case, you know, we're going to essentially still have the six-year look, the longer than, or the forever look back on anything that was prior to that date. There wasn't a return filed, or a return was filed prior to that date, as opposed to the return finally being filed after the effective date of December 29, 2022. That was the position of the court. Now, under that provision, the interesting thing is 
Um, yeah, the IRS go after everything that is pre-2023, right? Or pre-2022 cases. There's no form 5329 would have been filed. No, 5329 was filed those years. And you had an over-contribution. And that over-contribution was back in 19, 1992. That statute's still open. And that's the view of the majority here, that there is no such thing as a six-year statute on the returns that were filed under the old program. They're going to, they only get their statutes. You know, the, the statute is you got to go ahead and get it filed, right? There, you don't automatically get a six-year statute on the older things. As I said, there were a couple of judges that disagreed. And a concurrence joined by five judges, but not in full by three of them. So yeah, we got kind of a mess there. Uh, the holding was only that those cases where a notice of deficiency had been issued as of December 29th, 2022, uh, would be the ones, you know, that essentially would be in, would be, you know, would be effectively allowed to continue the IRS to collect. If in fact you had never filed the 92 report for 329 and the IRS had not filed a case against you yet, then the court says, yeah, that starts, that stops the statute. But the statute's done now because it goes back and it kills the statute. So if you made it to December 29th without a notice of deficiency, then you're okay going forward. You know, we don't have to worry about the notice. But again, that is a plurality, everything's a pure plurality of the court. We don't know for sure, you know, how that's going to play out, right? The only thing we know for sure is that we know that in this case with Couturier, that what they did essentially forced them uh, in the case to have to go ahead and fight this particular assessment of tax because they had a notice of deficiency in their hands prior to the effective date of the law. That would be the key issue. Now, in a dissent joined by two judges, agreed with the taxpayer that cases pending before the court should have been dismissed by this. So in essence, the taxpayer courtier should have gotten relief from the cases under this law. Now that obviously is a minority of only two judges, that's not a good position, probably, even outside the ninth, you know, or even, well, I don't know. Maybe you get a district, a court of appeals to rule differently, but I would suspect if you really had to fight this now, you're probably going to go to uh, the court of claim, or I should say to the district court of court of claims, the idea being to get out of your local court and, or not get in front of the tax court and then see if you, you can win based on your argument there. Finally, we have an IRS news release. And this is IRS, how to correct an electronically filed return rejected or missing form 8962 from Internal Revenue Service, Internal Revenue News Release, IR 2024-54, issued on February the 28th. And what this deals with is the fact that taxpayer who receives any advance payments of the premium tax credit must file form 8962, the premium tax credit form, with their tax returns. That's not optional. Now, if you got no advanced premium tax credit, say your income was too high, or you didn't give the income information, et cetera, whatever, then you don't need to reconcile on that form. You might still want to use that form to see if you actually qualified for a credit. 
but you don't have to reconcile it the same way you do if you have received any advanced premium tax credit. That's a problem. So we have a few things here. Now, the form reconciles the credit you receive to the advanced premium tax credit payments that were made on your behalf to the insurance company during the year. What we're going to figure out is, do you owe do you owe money right, for what happened, or is that really their problem? And we'll just have to kind of watch and see how all of that runs when we do that. Now, if the form is required and you try to submit the return electronically, the returns will be rejected and not accepted electronically if they should have the reconciliation form and it's not there. So be aware for that one as well. Right. Now, in essence, this particular reconciliation form must be filed if any family member was enrolled in marketplace health insurance during the year. IRS record shows that there was an advanced premium tax credit paid in their marketplace trust or basically insurance company into to mar marketplace insurance company for that individual or family member they're responsible for. Right. So that that's the one where you have to file the report. Just getting your insurance from the marketplace does not mean you have to file the report as long as you don't get an advanced premium tax credit. You probably still want to file it if it turns out that maybe you're looking and saying, yeah, this year wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. That might be a reason to look at it and get your credit on the 1040. The IRS noted they've seen an increase in uh, the number of returns being submitted this year that have this problem. Now, part of it could be because of all the, you know, all the confusion at the end of the year about what was going away, what's going to be the problems, etc. So there was a kind of quick last second change away from sending things via fax to sending things via, or I should say send, sending things via, yeah, via fax. Um, you know, those sorts of backgrounds are sending things electronically. So, you know, there's been a changeover from all of that. And the IRS has added a new FAQ page for the corrections. So if you need that, that's also available. It's available in materials with the slides on the website. Okay, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education. Ed Zollers, I'll be back with you next week for more information on the federal tax changes. If you have any questions, uh, you can email me, edzollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com. You also can contact me on the uh, Connect sites for various state societies. That includes Arizona, Soda, New Jersey, Illinois. Those states, I will be able to catch up with you there. Other thing that's going on is we also have, I do go on the Idaho Society's discussion site. You can find me there. And uh, finally, you know, just check in over time, see what's going on, and you know, we'll just see what's happening in the coming weeks. But in any event, hopefully you have some things to do this week. I think we all do. Uh, remember the due date for the first extension for uh, partnerships and past entities as corporations comes up. Right. Hey, we're really into tax season. We're getting through the first, you know, the, the first 2024 tax year extensions, at least for the most part at this point, you know, unless you had some short physical years. Uh, and even that was probably no, we're still at 24 tax years. So, yeah, we're still getting in 24 tax years, let's say 23 tax years and getting them extended. So, you know, we're getting that done. So we're going to go ahead and take care of that. That'll do it. We'll talk to you guys later uh, here on 
current federal tax developments.